Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today to go over some of the highlights of this new regulation that was just released last week, end of last week, actually, late last week. Uh, and it's going to be effective, as we know, on 17th of January, 2017. It's called the Retention of EB-1, EB-2, and EB-3 Immigrant Workers and Program Improvements Affecting Highly Skilled Non-Immigrant Workers. So we're going to go in the order in which the regulation was passed. Uh, again, it's a very preliminary broad overview just to help you because our focus is employer-related issues, but just so that you as employers, whether you're president, CEOs, HR professionals, for you to also appreciate where the employees may be coming from. Um, you know, if I can say something upfront overview, I'm not sure that the changes are as huge or dramatic as some of the employers or people might have initially been concerned about. And so hopefully as we go through it uh, with both Korzad and Chris Drynan, you will sort of get a pretty good feel for it. And talking about my learned and esteemed colleagues, I am so honored and privileged to introduce you by phone through this conference call with two of our most amazing and brilliant attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm. We have Chris Drynan, uh, who is a senior attorney here, as well as Korzad, uh, who has uh, incredible in-depth knowledge. Chris's focus has been a little bit more non-immigrant at the Murthy Law Firm, and Korzad has been more in the immigrant uh, section. But as you can see and as you will listen, you, you'll get a pretty good feel for where they're coming from. With that, let's get started in the format, sort of in the order in which the regulation was passed. The first major topic that the regulation hits upon is the retention of priority dates. Now, most of you will know this is not a big change or a big deal because this is how it almost always has been, but it's clarified some of the issues as we'll discuss. So it basically clarifies retention of priority dates by the beneficiary or the employee in almost every case, absent four major exceptions. And the only times a priority date cannot be retained is if the USCIS revokes the approval of the petition based on fraud or a willful misrepresentation of a material fact. So that's like a big one. And that was the same rule before. Now, I know, Korzad, you're dying to say the rest. Okay, let's... Uh, yeah, um, absolutely, Sheila. So as, as you started off, um, this rule uh, the, in this uh, new regulation basically tries to clarify some minor uh, discrepancies and disconsonances that existed between the regulation as it was written previously uh, and the uh, adjudicator's field manual that is followed by USCIS adjudicators at service centers and local offices when adjudicating immigration benefits. Uh, in practice, as we've all observed over time, uh, the USCIS has retained priority dates um, f for 
for nationals who are the beneficiaries of uh, employment-based petitions for their subsequently filed I-140s that are filed by other employers. Uh, so even if the I-140 has been withdrawn and revoked, so long as that revocation was not for fraud or misrepresentation. However, the regulation as it was written previously didn't make that very clear. It just said that you can retain a priority date, but if the petition has been revoked, you can't. The adjudicator's field manual clarified and said that, oh, but the revocation would have to be for fraud or willful So this regulation is much more helpful in that respect. It is. It is. It okay. clarifies it. It makes it more clear that mm-hmm. there are specific instances mm-hmm. where the USCIS will decline to retain the priority date to a subsequently filed petition, and that would be fraud or willful misrepresentation of a material fact, as you said, uh, revocation by the Department of Labor of the underlying approved uh, labor certification, if, if that was the basis of the Which almost petition. never happens. It's, it's not very common when I've ever right seen now. that no. happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, invalidation of that same labor certification by USCIS or Department of State, also an extremely rare occurrence, uh, as well as a determination by USCIS that the petition approval was based on a material error. Uh, basically, that's USCIS saying that, well, you know, we're not going to retain the priority date from a case that was approved by mistake, which, once again, in practice, uh, I think that's not a change. That's not really a change, but it is something that they're well, not Well, the change that we thought was the uh, they added the word material error as opposed sure. to just error. Before they were like, whoops, we made an error here. We're revoking your priority date, which was True. very troubling, especially for, you know, people, I guess, born in India and China because you and you had to wait 20 more True. years, maybe for the green card. Mm -hmm. So materiality is a little bit of a help. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, I know that uh, uh, President-elect Trump mentioned just yesterday or day before in the last couple of days that they would, uh, that he would uh, give West a huge amount of powers to the U.S. Department of Labor to look at visa and visa fraud-related issues. So I'm really hoping that the Department of Labor doesn't think that this is some sort of a blanket for them to somehow revoke the underlying approved labor certification when the employer requests a revocation. I don't know. I just worry about it. But you know what? Again, there are a lot of issues regarding the, you know, what's going to happen after January 20th when uh, President-elect Trump becomes the president, uh, but but all of these issues are something that we are whatever we're discussing today is based on the rules today, the regulations as they are as of today. Whether it's going to be somehow revoked or canceled or modified or changed, obviously none of us has a crystal ball to know exactly what's going to happen because there's a lot that he has said during the campaign. We don't know if that was just campaign rhetoric or whether it was which how, which parts of it he really plans to implement and which of it is just campaign stuff. Absolutely, Sheila. I mean, look, a lot of um, how regulations kind of flesh out in practice depend mm-hmm. on how the administrative agencies mm-hmm. kind of look at them, interpret them. Those interpretations, those actions by the administrative agencies are not necessarily insulated by the politics of the day. Um, so a lot of this remains to be seen. And like you said, what we're talking about today are basically just the black letter 
kind of broad-based framework that the government is putting out, how that's going to shift and change, where the pressure points will be, where there will be more flexibility, we'll only see as mm-hmm. adjudications start to flow through based on these regulations. Okay, thank you so much, Korzad. Now, most of you as employers on this conference call, IT consulting companies uh, and other employers, your big concern, as I understand it, is less with the retention of priority dates, which is more beneficial from the employee's point of view, but the I-140 EAD, because I think there was concern that, oh my God, after we as employers invest a whole bunch of money filing perm labor certifications, filing the I-140 petition, the employee then uh, says, you know, see ya, I'm going to work, get an unrestricted EAD and work somewhere else. But in reality, the regulation mentions the I-140 EAD, but basically it, what it gives with one hand, it seems to take away with actually two hands <laughs> So because there's very little that in reality we expect anything to be changed. So, Chris, can mm-hmm. I have you go over some sure. of that and explain it to our listeners? Sure, Sheila. As you noted, um, this is probably the provision that's gotten the most attention. A lot of employers are very concerned about this. Conversely, a lot of employees were, were very excited to hear about the possibility of a 140, I-140 EAD. In reality, this is a very limited benefit. Um, it will help some people in some limited circumstances, but for the most part, most people are not going to be eligible for this. Um, just to go over sort of the, back, the black letter requirements for this, um, someone who is the principal beneficiary of an approved I-140 and who is also in valid E-H-O or L non-immigrant status, uh, including some grace periods that are added by this regulation later on, um, can apply for an EAD card if there's not presently an immigrant visa available to them, meaning their, their priority date is not current, and if there are compelling circumstances to justify the issuance of that EAD. Now, what compelling circumstances are, we don't exactly know. Um, There are some uh, examples given here, uh, talking about things like medical situations preventing someone from continuing to work in their non-immigrant status, Um, situations where perhaps an employee has been retaliated against by an employer for potentially filing a complaint, Um, situations where, for whatever reason, an employer's business operations would be substantially disrupted. uh, so as to justify this type of, of uh, benefit. Um, and also it talks about humanitarian situations, um, which is kind of a catch-all for, for situations where essentially um, sort of the equities of the situation justify granting this to, a, to an applicant. And um, for what it helps, in general, we've seen when it's compelling circumstances, the USCIS, the Department of Homeland Security, has generally not been very broad or generous in Mm -hmm. granting it because it's more like really like Mm -hmm. Chris just said, sort of the idea is, you know, circumstances beyond your control, humanitarian, Mm -hmm. something really unusual, unexpected. So as an employer, Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to think, oh, my God, they're going to get the EAD. Honestly, I'm not sure that the EAD is going to be issued. Uh, as easily as the sub, you know, the sub. The I think it's going to be mentioned. rare, Sheila. This mm-hmm. is this is very similar. We file a, a fair number of what we call nunk protunk non-immigrant petitions, which are basically to reinstate someone to non-immigrant status after they've fallen out of status for whatever reason. Um, and you have to make an argument, basically, to justify that. And, and typically, it's, it's a high standard. It's a high standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're approved, but they're not easy cases. I think it's going to be the same type of situation here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. 
high standard or low standard, I mean, I think ultimately it's a very, very individualized and discretionary type of evaluation done Mm -hmm. by the officer. I mean, I think that the regulation was purposely written with a statement of uh, uh, describing this as compelling circumstances without really listing out, um, within the regulation at least, clear-cut criteria as to what would be considered that vests a heck of a lot of discretion Mm -hmm. within the um, hands of the uh, adjudicating officer. But conversely, in certain situations, that also gives us as attorneys um, some um, some room to advocate based on you know what may be written in the comments of this mm-hmm. regulation. I think it's important to note that the regulation, the draft regulation, the I'm sorry, the um, preliminary regulation that came out the day before it was issued in the Federal Register was on the magnitude of about 360, 370 mm-hmm. pages long. But in reality, half of that was the DHS, the USCIS, um, the the agencies kind of uh, summation and explanation of the comments that were received. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, mm. you know, when it comes to this I-140 EAD, they're talking about compelling circumstances. One of the commentators who discussed this with the uh, USCIS in the, you know, during the comment period talked about NIW physicians, mm-hmm. uh, physicians who uh, had received an EB2 NIW approval mm-hmm. and were working in underserved areas and whether that could be a compelling circumstance. It appears based on a footnote and some dicta in the, or you know, dicta is a legal word for um, you know, statements, offhand statements within the comments, that that may be a compelling circumstance. That might open up some opportunities for us as attorneys to look into how that can benefit mm-hmm. those particular types of people. So sure. it's a it's a flexible and malleable But with rule. the doctors and hospitals, both the employer and the employee care very deeply about it here, I think the concern from an IT consulting company mm-hmm. point of view is, hey, if I invest thousands and thousands of dollars and time processing a perm labor certification in I-140, will that employee now be able to walk after my time and investment uh, and basically leave me holding the bag? And the answer and is maybe, but not Probably really. not, most yeah. likely Something not. Something extreme has what to happen. What about spouses mm-hmm. and children who are also eligible for the EAD and what, what are the conditions for that, Chris? Sure. Spouses and children can also receive EAD under this provision if the Principal, meaning the principal beneficiary of the I-140, has gotten the EAD. Um, and this can also be renewed um, if you can still, if you can show that the your priority date is still not current. In other words, there's not a green card available to you. And if the compelling circumstances still exist. Or uh, there's a second way to renew this. Um, you can also renew this EAD if you can show that the delay on your priority date. In other words, uh, looking at the, the visa bulletin, it's less. It's one year or less from your date being current. You can also renew the card in, in, in those circumstances. Um, and just a final thing, which hopefully won't apply to too many people, um, you're not eligible for this if you have a felony or two misdemeanors. In other words, criminal, uh, criminal arrest or criminal convictions. Okay. And when the priority date delay of one year or less going by the current, which pretty much leaves leaves out most in almost all Indians and many Chinese nationals because they're never going to be one year or less unless they've already waited 10 or 15 years earlier. So that was the big EAD provision that was of grave concern to many of uh, you all as employers. Uh, Let's go to the next big item, which is the revocation of the I-140 petition. Mm -hmm. I think many of you as employers were concerned that, hey, if we're going to revoke it, Uh, because we are trying to show financial ability to pay for the next 
set of or the rest of the I-140 petitions that we as employers will file, and they say that it's not going to be considered revoked. From the employer's point of view, there's really no downside because the government has basically said that the employer's ability to pay issue is not going to be an issue in mm -hmm. terms of continuing the uh, use of that revocation and considering that even if it's withdrawn by the employer, the revocation is uh, the, 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 basically the employee can use it for H-1 extensions and other things, which for you all as employers might be very important and critical. Mm -hmm. um, so withdrawal by the employer, if it happens more than 180 days after approval of the I-140 petition or 180 days after the filing of the adjustment of status, then the I-140 is considered as continuing to remain approved, um, which is sort of an unusual, bizarre interpretation, mm -hmm. which has never happened so far. They will consider it as approved, remaining approved, but they also say that the uh, employee in the future must seek a brand new labor certification if it's a labor certification case and or a new I-140 immigrant petition in order to be able to file the adjustment of status or obtain the immigrant visa under consular processing unless the person was eligible under AC-21 portability. Um, they also meant talk about termination of the business. So if a b previously the business terminated or closed, there was always concern about, gee, does the I-140 remain viable? Uh, you know, there were big concerns about it. Now the, in this regulation, basically they've said the termination of the business more than 180 days after approval of the I-140 petition or 180 days after the filing of the adjustment of status, again, the petition continues to remain approved or valid. But again, the same rule about seeking a new petition in order to uh, be eligible to file the adjustment of status or obtain the immigrant visa. Interesting, very interesting, because um, when you as an employer sends out a written notice of a withdrawal, that you send to any officer of the USCIS. And if you send out that request for withdrawal, even though the petition is considered withdrawn, the I-140 remains approved um, unless the approval is revoked on other grounds. And I think we've touched upon some of those grounds before with when Corzad and I went over that. Um, they also talk about if the employment-based petition is withdrawn, the job offer of the petitioning employer, if you have withdrawn it, then that particular job offer by you is rescinded, which is why now you need to obtain that new employment-based preference petition. Um, and so that's why we think that the ability to pay tests, even if you withdraw it and even if it remains approved, you are, as the employer, is not going to be subject to now having to prove financial ability to pay because that job offer is considered rescinded by law. So that was the next big item. The next one we're going to go to, uh, because I'm mindful of the time, and we usually try to keep these discussions 30 to 45 minutes, and we've used about 20 minutes so far. Um, and as you can see, uh, Korzad, Chris, and myself are actually having a discussion because each of us is reading and looking at these regulations and tweaking it and dissecting it and analyzing it, uh, which is what you want the lawyers to do for you, is look at it from multiple different angles, uh, like appreciating a 
cut glass or a prism with its multiple shades. With that, let's go to the non-immigrant visa grace periods under this regulation. Khorasad, what is the 60-day grace period that they're talking about? Um, individuals who are present in the United States in certain limited um, non-immigrant visa classifications, E1, E2, E3, H1B, H1B1, L1, O1, or TN classification, were previously uh, interpreted to seize maintaining their lawful immigrants and non-immigrant status, rather, uh, upon the cessation of their employment. So individuals who were laid off or um, who were ter- whose employment was terminated uh, were oftentimes, and, and also the employers who would subsequently hire those individuals down the line, were, there was always a question as to whether there was maintenance of status such that they'd be able to regularize their status in the United States without having to depart the United States in consular process. What this regulation does is builds in a 60-day grace period from, the, um, from that uh, from that terminating or uh, or or laying off or, or from that event that previously would have raised the question about maintenance of status and now does not. And within those 60 days, the government, even if the individual is not working, the USCIS considers that person to be in a valid status, not even a period of authorized stay, a valid status, which permits them to change status, to extend stay, to change employer without necessarily having to have to depart the United States, which was an issue for employers because there would be a element of uncertainty and unpredictability, which is a hallmark of the consular processing um, process because of delays and security issues and things like that. Uh, Now, with this 60-day grace period for these particular very, very common non-immigrant classifications, uh, employers have a built-in level of predictability. Uh, they can, fi- if, they're, if they're within that relevant amount of time, they can file the um, relevant documentation that they need to to have that person start and be able to onboard them in a much more efficient manner. The 60-day grace period applies once during each validity period, and in the absence of practical adjudications at this point in time, because as you said, Sheila, the regulation is not effective yet. Um, the, um, w- the normally held, the generally held opinion is that this one time applies for each validity period. So effectively right. for each period with a, a, with in with, uh, H&B classification per petition. Right. And just, I, and, and Korzad may have already mentioned, but just by point of clarification, again, because you as employers, if you are going to be hiring this person who has been terminated or lost a job or there's a mass layoff because a company's gone out of business or whatever reason, remember, it is for a maximum grace period of up to 60 consecutive days or until the end of the authorized petition validity. So if the prior petition was only valid, let's say, for 30 more days, then it's 30 days and not 60 days because it's the shorter of 60 days or the validity of the petition. And part of the reasoning might be because the employee already knew that the employee mm-hmm. only had 30 days to wrap up. So you can either get, if you had three-year petition validity, then it's 60 days. If you're only one month left or 15 days left, then it's the one month or 15 days. Plus, also in the regulation, the Department of Homeland Security said that they may eliminate, completely eliminate or even shorten this 60-day mm-hmm. period as a matter of discretion. So you, as you as employers, when you file this, need to be sure that we can justify and explain why we need the advantage so that the employee doesn't have to fly outside, apply for a visa or come back into the country and lose val- valuable time traveling and coming back um, 
so that if the so to help the USCIS to approve the change of employer or the extension of status within the United States. Uh, the, another point that they mentioned is during that 60-day grace period, the employee is not allowed to work during that period. So the previous H-1B portability provisions, which allow you to port and start working upon filing the new petition, that does not work in this case because the alien or the foreign national beneficiary is not allowed to work during that period, uh, which is, again, a substantial restriction for you as an employer to keep in mind. And again, it comes back to having to spend or invest that additional premium processing fee if you need the individual to start right away on a client project or a third you know, end client site or project. And if that's, that can wait, then obviously that's okay. Next, Chris, I'm gonna have you discuss a little bit in how we calculate the period of mm -hmm. H-1B stays. I know this will be probably music both to you as employers <laughs> and also to more maybe to the employees because it's this wonderful new interpretation mm -hmm. that they had been giving people a hard time about. Yeah. I'm gonna to refer to these as sort of housekeeping provisions in this role because um, this clarifies some things that have been ambiguous for many years. Um, the first one, it's very good, very good news, is that USCIS clarifies um, basically that employees are eligible to utilize their entire six years of H-1B stay, regardless of how long it takes them to do that. Um, I, what we're talking about here is what we call recapture time. This is someone who has had H-1B status and been counted under the H-1B quota and perhaps has left the country for a period of time. Um, they're permitted to have an employer file another H-1B without being subject to the H-1B lottery or being subject to the quota again, and essentially come back in and start working immediately. Um, in recent, the recent past year or so, um, we've seen some situations where USCIS has uh, denied this type of case based on their interpretation um, that you couldn't do this if more than six years have gone by from the last time you had H-1B status. Uh, so essentially, they imposed a time limit on this, um, not anywhere on the regulations. Um, they essentially, this is one of the instances where USCS just made something up, in all honesty. Um, but this clarifies that. You're entitled as an employee to your entire six years of H-1B status, no matter how long it takes you to use that, that six years. Um, Which is fa just amazing and fantastic because I have actually had a few consultations in the last week or two specifically where someone said 10 years mm -hmm. ago I had an H-1B approved for six years, mm -hmm. but I either used you know six months or one year. I had a family tragedy. Mm -hmm. I had to go back because my father was dying. I went back or whatever. I uh, couldn't use it or somebody who actually didn't use it at all, right. which I don't know. They haven't spelled it out, but it appears that even in that situation, that the person will be eligible to use the entire six years and re basically come back and file it and is exempt mm -hmm. from the H-1B quota or cap, which is just amazing. Yeah, this was very unclear for the past, at least the past year or so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing, uh, the other provision here that's, that's also very good news um, deals with the, what I'll call the one-year AC-21 extension. Um, just a little background that a lot of you are probably familiar, familiar with. You can extend an H-1B beyond six years basically in two circumstances. Either you've got an approved I-140. You meaning the employee, not the employee. you as the employer. Yeah. yeah. The employee can extend their H-1B uh, if they've got an approved I-140 filed on their behalf that's not current. In other words, there's not a green card available. That authorizes a three-year H-1B extension. 
or you can also extend your H-1B status for one year um, if you've got a labor certification, a perm case, um, or an I-140 petition where there's no perm case involved that's been pending for 365 days. That authorizes a one-year H-1B extension beyond the six years. And the USCIS came out with a bizarre interpretation yes. that you should have filed it in before mm-hmm. the you know the six starting of the sixth year of your H-1 petition when exactly. that was nowhere written in the AC-21 law. In the law. So the they law. basically stretched the regulation and Department of Homeland Security. And this regulation has basically said, sorry, if I have two or three more months left on my I-1 for on my uh, uh, H-1, I can mm-hmm. still file the perm. I may have mm-hmm. to leave the country for eight or 10 months, come mm-hmm. back a year later, and you don't have to keep a few days aside on H-1 right. status to recapture and continue and extend it. You can go abroad, come back, and then continue it, say, six or eight months later when you hit this 365-day mark. Yeah. And this is going to help a lot of people. This does come up fairly frequently. This is a very important issue mm-hmm. and a clarification both for the employer and for the employee because exactly. when there is such a huge shortage of high-tech, highly skilled STEM workers in America, a lot of companies, especially consulting companies, uh, would could really take advantage mm-hmm. and use the benefit of somebody who had a prior H-1 approval from years sure. and years ago that's never been used or partially used. Next, you have the adjustment of status AC-21 portability issue. The USCIS has said that they are going to, but they use the word may, may require filing of a new I-485 supplement J for AC-21 for portability cases. Of course, they have not released the (laughs) supplement, J. They haven't really explained what exactly it's going to have, but it's expected to be in the nature of what we've been thinking from the time AC-21 law was passed back in October of 2000, which is only like 16-plus years ago at this point. But I think, Korsad, you had something you wanted to add to that. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's funny that they would use the word may, right? Because mm-hmm. why would they go through the certification and, uh, you know, preparation and, you know, OMB approval process, mm-hmm. Office of Management and Budget approval process for a form that they may or may not use? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unclear right now what form, uh, th- what, what form this process is going to take uh, to use this particular supplement, Jay. Uh, another thing to bear in mind is, is that it appears, at least based on the draft of the form that we have seen up to now, that the employer that the employee is porting to, that would be the new employer, has to take a little bit more active role in the portability context than they have in the past. In the past so that could now, be a huge benefit to an IT consulting companies and employers like that because one of their bigger con- biggest concerns was that the employee could leave right away and the end client has to do almost nothing other than give a one-page letter. Now the end client whose legal counsel or general counsel department may not want to do more has either to do more or the individual employee cannot actually join and just leave and join that end client and take advantage of AC-21. In fact, this has become more restrictive than at, at what we've had until now in that sense. In a way. I mean, and like, like I said, you know, right now we don't know what form or, or this process is going to take. We don't even know if maybe there's going to be a fee involved mm-hmm. with filing portability requests. And if there is a fee, who has to, who bears the responsibility right. of a fee? Though I'd guess that that would be the employee themselves. Um, it, it the, for, uh, the The draft form, besides adding a paperwork burden, uh, there's also an information burden in there. Uh, some of, the, the, some of mm-hmm. the, um, portions of the form ask for the company's, um, net income and net current assets and other very, very 
proprietary corporate information from the new employer, which, although USCIS appears to say in their comments is really not mm-hmm. germane to a portability determination, the fact that they're asking for it may give some employers cause for pause in uh, taking on new foreign nationals who are in a situation where they can benefit from portability. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a gray situation that remains to be seen. Uh, of course, portability is ensconced in the law. Right. The right of a foreign national to be able to uh, take their green card process to a new employer, uh, assuming they've met the requirements of the uh, of the law, mm-hmm. remains. But the process seems to have gotten a little bit muddled. Right. Um, another kind of uh, matter that's of more of interest to lawyers, uh, but still of interest to uh, employers and foreign nationals, is you know when a portability request can be made. Um, after a case that was uh, decided, I believe, in 2008 or 2007 mm-hmm. called Al-Wazan, uh, the generally accepted best practice has been to hold off requesting portability until such time as an I-140 has been approved. This regulation clarifies um, previous guidance on this issue from 2005 from, mm-hmm. um, from a gentleman named William Yates, uh, whereby portability, portability could be requested even if the I-140 has not been approved. Mm-hmm. But the, regu- the, the comments and the regulation do make it very, very clear that ultimately it does need to be approved. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, you know, how, that, how this new pronouncement will play out with uh, strategy for individual cases is why you know, mm-hmm. folks like you consult with folks like us right. because we can help you strategize and utilize this regulation to, the, to, your, best, um, uh, um, to your best advantage. But that's another kind of tidbit that's mm-hmm. come out of this. Okay, Chris? Okay, and just to, to clarify a little bit what Korzad's already mentioned, this this sort of um, puts down as, as regulation the existing practice from always on and from the prior guidance. Um, your, the employee is allowed to port after 180 days, after the 485 has been pending 180 days, but ultimately the I-140 does have to be approved. Um, it's probably still generally best not to port until the I, while the I-140 is pending. There's always an element of risk to that because um, this guidance continues what, what USCIS has always said is that the I-140, if it's pending at the time that you port, uh, it had to, had to have been approvable when filed. It ultimately does have to be approved. The one the previous approvable when filed rule has now mm-hmm. been changed to that it now it needs, so it's a higher standard. It, it, it has does to have to be approved. Uh, the one uh, sort of perhaps uh, thing that is in the regulations that's helpful to the employee um, is it says that there's the ability to pay is not going to be taken into consideration if the if the person is ported, essentially. So they'll make a decision on the I-140 absent the, the requirement that the employer show ability to pay because essentially the employer is now going to be out of the picture if the person is ported to another to another position. Yeah, so again, for many, many consulting companies and other employers, uh, since at least with citizens who are or nationals of India, the ability even to reach the I-485 stage uh, takes you know anywhere from five to ten, maybe fifteen or twenty years in EB3 category, and EB2 could be five to ten years. You're talking a very very long time later that the there is a possibility because the I-485 has to be pending for 180 days or longer, um, and the I-140 needs to be approved. Um, in order for a lot of a lot of this sort of benefit to 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 take place, in order to file that whatever we talked about the supplement J. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about in all cases, 
both the adjustment applicant, meaning the beneficiary, and the employer need to demonstrate the intention for the applicant to be employed or continues to be employed under the continuing or new employment offer. And they allow, in this case, self-employment, which had been mentioned in a couple of memos before, Mm -hmm. um, but we were never clear if that was a mistake or if the government was going to change its position or modify it because uh, the entire H-1B employer-employee relationship, L-1, even when the company, a billionaire comes in, invests money for abroad and here, uh, they are saying, where's the employer-employee relationship? They seem to be going back about establishing right of control, employer-employee relationship. So there was a concern about employment, self-employment, but it looks like they're allowing, going to allow including self-employment uh, as long as there is a continuing employment or new employment by the new AC21 Adjustment of Status Portability Employer. And this employment needs to be within a reasonable time period upon the beneficiary or the applicant's grant of lawful permanent resident status. Sometimes we've had people who said, well, I never went back to that employer. I didn't do anything for five years, 10 years, 15 years, uh, or never went back like at all. That's going to be a huge problem potentially even under the current, this so-called modified um, concern. Now, also in terms of the definition of same or similar job occupational classification, if you are the new employer that is now going to hire this person who had previously filed an adjustment with a different company, the regulation explains that the term same occupational classification means an occupation that resembles in every relevant respect. That's a high standard in every relevant respect, the occupation for which the underlying employment-based immigrant visa petition was approved. Uh, They also talk about the term similar occupational classification means an occupation that shares essentially essential qualities or it has a marked resemblance or likeness with the occupation for which the underlying employment-based immigrant visa petition was approved. So... Again, it's a lot of what we had thought, but we had thought they had they were looking at it extremely broadly. I remember in our discussions, they had at one time said, even if the case was filed for a software programmer, a programmer, a software engineer, or programmer analyst, but the person becomes a professor in the future, since the same underlying uh, skills that are required, we might be open to it. Guess what? I don't think under this current regulation, it doesn't look like it might work any longer because it's not going to be identical, similar in every respect because teaching is completely different from programming, coding, or being. So I, I think you have actually a narrower interpretation in that sense um, from what I can read of this regulation. Let's go to the one good news, I guess, which is remaining, which is the last major section in this regulation, which is the automatic extension of EAD because employers are concerned when they hire an employee only on the EAD with no H-1B petition or underlying non-immigrant petition because the government has been taking longer than 120 days or 90 days to approve it, even though their prior regulation required a decision in 90 days. Korzad? Yeah, I mean, this this um, new part of the regulation uh, effectively is trying to protect um, 
foreign nationals, uh, uh, their their employers, as well as the USCIS. Uh, and it's to protect USCIS from having to have to stick to a strict adjudication timeline and protects USCIS, uh, I'm sorry, um, foreign nationals and their employers from processing time creep, which is unfortunately a a realistic and reason a realistic part of um, adjudications. Just by background, up to now and continuing until January seventeenth, um, by all indications, uh, EAD applications received by USCIS by regulation had to be adjudicated within ninety days. Uh, and if the EAD expired, uh, the EAD that was to be renewed had expired while that extension was adjudicated, uh, the foreign national had to stop working because their work authorization ceased. Uh, what this regulation does is removes that 90-day limitation for USCIS to adjudicate the case. However, it builds in a 180-day period beyond the expiration of the EAD card whereby an individual can continue working uh, while they wait for that EAD to be issued. And that gives um, a, lo- a lot of folks a lot of different, um, a-, a lot of flexibility. Now, it's important to realize that this is not the, a quote-unquote blanket rule. This doesn't apply to every EAD. It doesn't apply to initial EADs. Uh, it doesn't apply to EADs that uh, individuals in non-immigrant classifications or, or spouses of non uh, uh, of those individuals, like H4 EADs, it does not apply to. L2 EADs, it does not apply to. E-spouse EADs, it does not apply to. Uh, those individuals do not benefit from really the 90 days is gone people. now. Yeah, and the That's, 90 days is gone days now. Is so gone those individuals now. may have a long wait before they're eventually uh, work authorized. But it does apply to individuals who we're thinking about here, who are, who are um, the beneficiaries of uh, pending adjustment applications. So it puts a little bit of flexibility, but it's a classic give and take. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Any Anything else you want to add? Because I know we were talking overall about the potential, you know, other changes that the regulation has sort of touched briefly upon in terms of uh, you know, portability and bridging petitions and making sure that each set of bridging continues uh, in order for a person, if they're changing from employer A to employer B to employer C to D, each of the underlying petitions needs to be approved in order for the final extension of status to be approved. The second uh, provision is that uh, it protects certain H-1 employers who file complaints. It's called whistleblower protection mm-hmm. in cases where there is employer retaliation based on reporting a violation of the employer's obligation. So you all as employers need to be aware that there's a, this additional protection given to H-1 employees, which was sort of implied and not written anywhere before, but now they've specified mm-hmm. and spelt it out in this new regulation. The same thing with and, the bridging thing that you described. Yeah, um, same a, thing was all of this was, was there, kind of but they've the memo, spelt it out. Now they spelled now it out. Now it's spelled out. Right, um, and the third is the employment and occupations that typically require a license. Now they're saying that as long as we can show that the failure to obtain the license was due to an t- inability to meet a technical requirement, or uh, if, it, if it demonstrates that the person can fully perform the job duties under the supervision of a licensed supervisor, then the H-1 petition can still be granted. And I know they, again, did that before. They would grant right. it, for example, for medical doctors mm-hmm. in for one in for one year term until they could show the proof of that licensure in a particular state. And finally, the Department of Homeland Security has clarified that a nonprofit entity, which might be a really good opportunity for certain businesses and inter- employers to consider, is that a nonprofit entity that is engaged in 
a fundamental activity that directly contributes to the research or education mission of a qualifying college or university very well may qualify for both H-1B cap exemption and for the Acquia fee exemptions. You're talking the 1500 mm-hmm. or 750 fee. Furthermore, the government research organizations that qualify for these exemptions now expressly include state and local government research entities as well as federal entities, which was never the case until now. Mm-hmm. So there's some really interesting mm-hmm. stuff. I know we're coming very close to our 45-minute window that we usually try to earmark because people try to understand this. I will tell you that there were other issues that when we, when Korzad, Chris, and myself were discussing, uh, preparing for this uh, session with you all, uh, talking about the affiliation agreements with universities that they are now no longer going to look under the hood to see whether it's genuine relationship, but if there is an agreement between the employer and the university that it still would be cap exempt uh, concurrent h1b employment with a cap exempt employer and cap subject employers which was creative lawyers were using that is now no longer going to be able to work so they've really i guess closed that loophole um and uh so we don't know if NAFTA is no longer going to be in place or, or whatever. I think we were talking about in general what could happen in the in a combination of this new regulation <laughs> and a new presidency, which would, you know, the regulation becomes effective on January 17th mm-hmm. of 2017. Trump is supposed to be uh, sworn in as a new president on January 20th through three days later. So if NAFTA is no longer allowed, TN is no longer an option. We were talking about different when we were brainstorming about how this could impact an employer in terms of looking at it. Um, We hope that this has given you a sense of what this regulation hopes to accomplish. Uh, We think you as employers don't need to be panicky about it. Yes, some of it is not that helpful, but honestly, it hasn't dramatically in huge ways changed the playing field other than in a couple of areas that we touched upon. Um, so, you know, which really there's been a sort of the, the six month EAD extension mm-hmm. um, and the uh, pr- particular issue with respect to the I-140 EADs, which is, again, extremely limiting. So saying that on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy and my two brilliant colleagues here, Chris Drynan and Korzad Mehta, along with all of us at the Murthy Law Firm, we thank you for being a part of today's teleconference on the new regulation. And we look forward to continuing to help you uh, as you continue to navigate in turbulent waters. Uh, Hope all of you either will have or have had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and we will be in touch. Thank you.